Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, it's very good to be back at Southeastern once again and on Election Day. And if I remember correctly, at the previous election, I was here as well. So there's something that God is saying through this that you need help from your northern neighbor or something like that. (laughs) But that's very unlikely. So I'm very grateful to President Aiken for the invitation. Thank you, sir and also to the Kern Foundation who sponsor so many good things here in this great country. And uh, it's a real privilege for me to be in your midst. And I I think what I look forward most to is not speaking, but one-on-one engagements, an opportunity to get to know some of you, to hear your life stories, and to Uh, share fellowship with you at a deep level uh, in Christ. So the passage that I want to refer you to for my chapel talk, but I won't read it so that I can maximize time, is Luke chapter 24, the Emmaus Road journey. And you know, Cleopas and his companion were joined on this walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about seven miles, so a reasonable walk. And afterwards, they they said to themselves, did not our hearts burn within us? And so my prayer for my few days with you is that God may give us grace so that we may look back on these tumultuous days because of the election like Cleopas and his companion, and find ourselves saying, did not our hearts burn within us as we focused afresh on this Trinitarian God who has come to us so very, very remarkably in Jesus Christ? Now, the title for my talk this morning, you need to listen to this, is Two Ways two meals, two Americas, question mark, Christ and culture. I do have headings through my paper, and I nearly prepared a PowerPoint, but then it was getting a bit late, so I'll I'll flag the headings as I go along. Now, I imagine, I don't know, because I'm not an American, but I'm sure that many of us sitting here today are distracted. It is hard, I imagine, to have chapel as usual on a day like this. And doubtless you have lived this election in a far deeper way than me. Personally, I have watched with astonishment from the north in Canada and from the south in South Africa over the summer. America remains the superpower of the world And it has been beyond extraordinary to witness this type of contest for the political leadership of America. 
we do, I think, need to attend to the strangeness of this election and to ask, I suggest to you, what is it a sign of? Now, you will be very relieved to know that as someone who lives in Canada, that I have no intention of trying to answer that question for you. Uh, I'm not here to interpret uh, the sign that is the election. To a major extent, such interpretation is the responsibility of Americans, although one cannot but be deeply aware as with the near economic collapse in 2008, that what happens in America resonates for better and for worse around the globe. My deep hope is that at a place like Southeastern, that you together, uh, beneath the cross and in the light of the way in which God has come to us in Christ, that you are working at interpreting the bizarreness of this election. Unlike some of what I have seen, I hope you are doing this with civility and with respect for those who disagree with you. Whatever they are, the lessons of this election need to be attended to and they need to be learned. And where possible, I suggest that Christians ought to be at the forefront culturally, scouting, as George Weigel said of John Paul II, the future with a view to how to lead the church in what lies ahead in our culture in North America. Now, a gift, I think, of this election, because I think it has brought gifts, and I think amidst all it, its bizarreness, it is an invitation. And a gift of this election is that it serves as a powerful reminder that politics and political leadership really do matter. Since the end of World War II in the West, we have enjoyed decades of comfort and the benefits of a consumer culture. Virtually all of us, I imagine, who are here today have no recollection whatsoever of what it is like to be a nation at war as Europe and then America were in the middle of the 20th century. And the result is that it is easy for us to think, far too easy, that politics does not really matter. I want to remind you, my brothers and sisters, that you could not have lived through World War II and held that view. It would have been impossible to have your eyes open during World War II and think that politics didn't matter. Deviant politics can be absolutely catastrophic, and it was in the course of World War II. It led, amongst other things, to the genocide of six, some six million Jews and many others using the most up-to-date technology 
to implement what National Socialists called the final solution. And it took the remarkable political will of figures like Winston Churchill to lead the stand against the eruption of evil. And you know, to this day, scholars, Christian and non, continue to debate the role of the church during those desperate days. America, as I see it, is now in a situation where terrorism is increasingly manifesting itself in our midst. America's debt is colossal. Major ethical issues are confronting this great nation. And this election tells us very clearly that Americans are deeply divided. And we know that whoever emerges today triumphant as president will make a significant difference to the future of this great country. But what, you might ask, has this got to do, if anything, with the gospel and with Christ? And that's really what I want to get to today in this talk on two ways, two meals, two Americas. What has this got to do with the gospel, with our service and passion for Christ and for mission and evangelism, for us as disciples, as followers of Christ, who have declared our ultimate allegiance to Him and to no other, there can be no more important question. And you know, it remains true still in large swathes of the church in America that many evangelicals respond to such issues in a way that reminds me of Margaret Stilf's wonderful story about a fish. And this fish had heard a rumor that there was this thing called the ocean. But you know, this fish was a philosophy major and a skeptic and simply wouldn't accept such testimony. So the fish decided it would do an experiment. That's a good thing. Let's find out what the evidence is. So the fish swam as far as it could north, as far as it could south, as far as it could east, and as far as it could west. And no matter where it searched, it could not find this thing called the ocean. And you see, for far too long and far too often, evangelical Christians in America have been like that fish. Culture is like the water a fish swims in. And it is so much part of our lives that remarkably, it is too easy to miss it altogether. But to miss it is to make a fatal mistake. A fish may take water for granted, but toxins in the water can kill. And Christians can and do ignore and neglect culture, but when culture goes wrong, the effects can be fatal. Now, I ask all of you today, well, what is culture? Just like the fish, you know, what is the ocean? What is culture? Well, let me try and open that up a bit for you. 
Culture stems from the doctrine of creation. And if we're going to recover an understanding of the importance of culture and how it relates to Christ, you have to retrieve a very robust doctrine of creation. I remind you, and this is, you know, you all know this, but do you know the implications that God has made us embodied creatures of flesh and bone? He's placed us in a concrete, material, visceral world of sky, land, and sea, of cities, towns, and farms, of families, and educational institutions like this one here. Now, of course, not all of these elements emerged straight away when God ushered the creation into existence. But the potential for them was built into the creation. Augustine, for example, speaks of seeds that God has planted in His creation. And one of the glorious responsibilities of being human, of being made in the Imago Dei, is that we are called to exercise a royal stewardship over the creation to water those seeds, to allow the creation to develop and for all its hidden potentials to come to the surface so that more and more the creation resounds like a grand symphony to the glory of God. And insofar as culture is something that is part of creation, it's not just something that we should tolerate. It is a sheer delight. Culture, if it emerges, as I've argued, out of creation, is part of that very good which Elohim pronounces over His creation. And so you see, culture is about how we organize our lives, how we do family life, how we do societies and nations. Culture is about the air we breathe, the exercise we take, the way we locomote around our towns and cities, the food we eat, the books we read, the books we write, how we educate, the music we make, the music we listen to, the films we make, the films we watch, and the leaders we elect. This is not alien to Christianity. This is how God has made us. And redemption in Christ, brothers and sisters, does not for a moment alter this fundamental shape of our humanity, of our being created as embodied creatures in the image of God. Indeed, as the Scandinavian theologian Chorholm comments, Creation is the very stuff of redemption. So I share with you a passionate commitment to the fact that Christ is Savior, that He has come to save. But one of the most critical questions in this kind of discussion is, what has He come to save, if not that which God has created? Without creation, there is no redemption, and redemption is a retrieval of God's original purposes for creation. 
Now, you know, I want to argue, and I'd be very happy to have vigorous civil debate about this afterwards, that as Christians, I I think what I'm presenting is orthodox biblical Christianity. But it is not the Christianity that marks large swathes of American Christianity. But you know, as orthodox Christians, we do not believe that humans are disembodied souls. We do not believe that the soul with Plato is locked into the prison of a second-rate body. Orthodox Christians have always known, and for those of us who continue to use the great creeds of the Christian church, which I hope you do from time to time here at Southeastern, we affirm unequivocally that in the light of the Christ event, We believe in the resurrection of the body and the soul. We believe in the redemption, the recovery, and the resurrection of the whole embodied human person. And what I want to tell you is that with such embodiment goes inevitably culture. Now let me make my case a bit more strongly, I hope. Jesus' resurrection with his resurrection body, is surely the exemplar in this respect. And I draw your attention to a fascinating detail in Luke chapter 24 and verse 41. Now, I myself, like all of you, I think, would love to have been on the Emmaus Road. It would have made my hermeneutics book a far better book if I had had that sort of instruction, and maybe a far bigger book, which would have been a bad thing. But one would have loved to have been there to hear Christ expounding the Scriptures in relation to Himself. Oh, the depths and the riches. And I'm not surprised that dear old Cleopas and his companion, they had just got to Emmaus when they had this incredible experience with Jesus at the meal, And they're so excited, they went for a seven-mile run back to Jerusalem. Well, I mean, this is what the gospel can do to you. And they hasten back to Jerusalem to tell the 11 disciples and their companions what has just happened. And remember, when they arrived in Emmaus, it was evening. So I don't know, you know, what seven miles? And, you know, maybe they were very fit and, you know, it was like, I don't know, uh, an hour or something. But it's probably getting on into the evening. And, and they're telling the 11 disciples and their companions, but they met with skepticism and disbelief. And then suddenly, Jesus stands in their midst. And they're terrified, understandably. And they think he's a ghost. And Jesus invites them to touch him. He reminds them that a ghost does not have flesh and bone, as does he. And then their fear gives way to joy, but they still can't believe it. They're disbelieving. And so to clinch the argument, Jesus does a very strange thing, I think, for many of us. He says to them, Do you have anything to eat? And well, they they didn't do terribly well. I think at Southeastern you would have done much better. (laughs) But they say, well, he has a piece of broiled fish. 
and he eats it in their presence, and then he disappears. You see, ghosts do not eat, but flesh and bone humans do. This, of course, drives a bus through the docetic heresy that Christ was never fully human. Like all embodied humans, the resurrected Jesus eats. And Christ's eating also drives a bus through any view that the gospel has nothing to do with culture. How so? Well, I want to reflect with you for a moment, which you may not have done before, on the phenomenon of eating. What could eating have to do with the gospel, the culture, and the election? Eating is part of culture that we take for granted, just like the fish takes the water for granted. Our formative practices of the way we acquire food may serve to reinforce this ignorance as in haste we push the trolley down the supermarket aisle, frustrated by those who get in our way, tossing what we need in for the week or the month. Such practices separate us from the food chain and too often create the illusion of pristine health and wholeness and the instant availability and the relative unimportance, therefore, of food as long as it's cheap and readily available. But I ask you, instead of that, to reflect for a moment on the remarkable phenomenon of eating. In an important book, The Hungry Soul, Eating and the Perfecting of Our Nature, the Jewish bioethicist Leon Cass says this, Compared to wisdom, eating may be a humble subject, but it is no trivial matter. It is the first and most urgent activity of all animal and human life. We are only because we eat. And in a remarkable discussion, Cass unpacks how much of our human life, our culture, is organized around this human necessity of eating. Some of you, I'm sure, come from farming backgrounds. So you know the enormous amount of work that continues day in and day out of growing, of harvesting, of rearing animals, of slaughtering, transporting, stocking, supplying, etc., etc., etc. Then Cass talks about all the other things, the manufacture of tables and chairs, so that we have places where we can sit to eat, of the industry that develops kitchen gadgets and implements, of the provision of water, of the provision of electricity and gas, of the running of bakeries, of food markets, restaurants, coffee shops, etc., etc., etc. 
Then there's the scientific study of food, university departments devoted to this, and governmental departments related to food. And it all revolves, all of that, all of that culture revolves around humankind and eating, on humankind as a cultural being. Eating is a profound indication of our embodiment. If you want to get a sense of just how deeply our lives are woven into the creation and into culture, a superb way to do it is through thinking about eating. Do you know, let me put it this way, you and I would not survive for more than a few days without continually ingesting other parts of God's creation. You know, we are constituted in our DNA and in our chemical makeup by the fact that we continually ingest other parts of the creation of which we are part. And part of our royal stewardship as creatures in the image of God involves the glorious tasks of agriculture and the ongoing preparation and consumption of food. We share this need for food with animals, but the way we handle food does and should also mark us off from animals. And Leon Cass says of reductive scientists who reduce eating in their theory to mere biology, that inevitably their practices contradict their reductive theories. He says they eat sitting down at a table where they notice temperatures and textures, where they enjoy seasonings and spices, and they take pleasure both in the abatement of their hunger and in the sequence of courses and tastes. They converse while eating, taking as much pleasure in the company and conversation as in the food. You see, brothers and sisters, eating, just like politics, is a profoundly cultural and human activity. And it has always been so because that is how our Father has made our world. Where I strongly disagree with Leon Cass is in his statement that if we lived in a bountiful garden of Eden, who would work? Who would do much of anything? Now, how someone who has written a superb commentary on Genesis could make a statement like that is quite beyond me. As we know, the first couple was placed in a great park called Eden a play on the Hebrew word for delight. And their job, which was a full-time vocation, was to tend the park. And it's very interesting to me that in the ancient Near Eastern context, this sort of park, this extensive uh, uh, garden and farm would have been categorized as an urban phenomenon. We make a big mistake if we think of Eden as somehow pristine wilderness. In the ancient Near East, this was culture, this was habitation, this was urbanism. 
And there were lots of things to do in Eden. I don't think Adam and Eve were sitting there twiddling their thumbs thinking, oh, how glorious, holiday for the rest of eternity. Have you ever wondered, I, I wonder, and maybe you can put yourself in the shoes of Adam and Eve this morning. And you know, if you think of Israeli climate and you've worked hard uh, managing the park during the day, and then as is typical of your days, when it gets cooler in the evening, Yahweh Elohim comes for a walk in the park. And so can you imagine yourself after your day of hard work accompanying Yahweh Elohim for a walk around parts of the park? And I want to ask you this question. What do you think they talked about? Well, I have absolutely no idea, but I, I, I'm never shy of making suggestions. Well, of course, they talked about embodied human life in relation to God. They would have talked about what plants and crops to grow. They would have talked about how that species was doing. And, you know, Anne Lamott says her and her friends only pray two types of prayers, help, 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 and thank you, thank you, thank you. And I think in the Garden of Eden, as Adam and Eve were exploring the glories of the creation, the fruits, the vegetables, uh, learning to know the animals for whom they could create space and provide food, a lot of that conversation would have just been, thank you, thank you, thank you being cultural, being created, being embodied is absolutely glorious. You see, eating, just like politics, is way too easy to ignore when things are going well and to assume that the gospel has nothing to do with them. Insofar as the gospel and, and this I want to, you to attend to, please. And so far as the gospel is concerned with our humanity, and I phrase it virtually as a question, because I never assume amidst God's people that they understand how the gospel is related to our humanity. But in so far as it is, the gospel has everything to do with all the dimensions of our culture including eating and politics and the many other multifaceted dimensions of human life. The, one of our, the great ethicists of our day, Oliver O'Donovan of Edinburgh University, says in his magisterial resurrection and moral order that kingdom and kingdom ethics is the reaffirmation of creation. And so if creation is that out of which culture issues forth, then kingdom and Jesus and gospel is not anti-cultural, it's the profound affirmation of culture. And just as this election is, I hope, alerting us to the fact that healthy politics matters, so too the abuse of the food chain has alerted many of us to the fact that food matters. And so too do things like animal rights. 
And there's a swathe of good literature on this subject. One thinks, for example, of the Jewish author Michael Pollan's several outstanding books. And in one of them, he tracks the origins of three meals. And the hero of that book of those three meals is a Christian farmer with the name of Joel Salatin. And Salatin has also written a book with the wonderful title, it sounds like a very southern book to me, Folks, This Ain't Normal, okay, which is an exquisite uh, uh, narrative about food and food production. And Salatin in that book evocatively writes the following words, Our four generations live on the farm. Our four generations living on the farm is perhaps my single greatest blessing. Surrounded by this emerald farm and God's creative crown, surrounded by abundance in the fields, the gardens, and the basement larder, feasting on compost-grown, pasture-raised food, minimally prepared in our home kitchen, communing with family, this is normal. This is connection, foundation, heritage, tradition. And yet most modern Americans can't conceive of living like this. To be human is to be cultural, and we ignore the relationship between Christ and culture at our peril. And for those of you, you know, who may be saying, well, Craig, it's there in creation, but is culture really there in the rest of the Bible? And that's one of the big challenges with this is that we've got glasses on through which we read Scripture, and those glasses are continually continually telling us it's only souls that matter. It's not fully embodied humans that matter, and it's only the salvation of souls that matter. And it's not the recovery of God's purposes for His whole creation that matters. And if you read Scripture through those glasses, all you will end up doing is a type of remarkable eisegesis. You bring your view to Scripture, you read it into Scripture, and then, oh my goodness, there it comes again, confirming your view. So those glasses, we need to do some work, I suggest, with them. So Leon Cass, for example goes for a book that would really surprise many of us. He uses the Levitical food laws. At the climax of his book on eating, in his chapter on, and I love this, sanctified eating, holy eating, the holy use of food. Today, I wonder what holy politics looks like. In her Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture, Ellen Davis opens up a fruitful dialogue between the new Southern agrarianism and with Wendell Berry in particular and the Old Testament, demonstrating the relevance of books like Leviticus for today. Others uh, nearby here have drawn attention to the Eucharist or Holy Communion and our theology of food. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 33, Paul has a discussion of food offered to idols, and it bears visiting. 
And he concludes it with these well-known words, but I think they're words that we hear, but we don't fully understand. And I hope this backdrop will make you hear them with fresh ears. Eugene speaks, uh, Peterson speaks about the Word made fresh. And sometimes we need to defamiliarize ourselves with what we think we know so that we can hear God speaking again. So in this context, listen to these words. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. A study that I would welcome from a doctoral student, unless I may learn over lunch, which would be also exciting that it's already been done, is that someone would do a reception historical study of this text to see how the church and Jews have read this text down through the ages. I did a little bit of probing on that in preparation for this, and boy, was it interesting. You see, eating and drinking, like politics, are holy tasks, according to Paul, that is. You may disagree with Paul. But according to Paul, whether you eat or you drink or you do your studies at Southeastern or you operate your family life or you run a shop or you're involved in transport or you're a gardener or a farmer or a pastor, do it all to the glory of God. Why? Why do it all to the glory of God? For as Paul says in the same section, for the earth and its fullness are the Lord's. Now, where is Paul quoting from? Can anyone tell me? Quickly consult your study Bible. <laughs> okay. Paul is quoting from a magnificent psalm, Psalm 24. And you need to go and look at this psalm because when the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, as C.H. Dodd taught us many years ago, it's generally far more intelligent than a type of proof texting. Generally, when the New Testament quotes from the New Testament, they knew their Old Testament, so they knew the context, and all that context comes with in the quotation of a verse. And you go read Psalm 24. I know which part you'll like. The cultic part, the worship part. You know, the king entering into Jerusalem. Open your gates, O Jerusalem, so the king of glory may come in. Oh, I love that too. But I love even more that the liturgy of Israel her cultic practices are never separated from the fact that the king of glory who's going to enter the temple where he dwells as the king in the midst of his people is the creator God. For the earth and its fullness are the Lord's. And so, uh, Columbia Marmon says in relation to 1 Corinthians 10, as well as the things that we typically do as Christians, which are so important, church, chapel, all these things, 
It is the most ordinary and mundane actions, the most commonplace incidents of our everyday life, like taking food, attending to our daily concerns or our work, fulfilling in society as a man or citizen our various duties, necessary or useful, relaxing, giving oneself up to rest. All these actions, which are repeated each day and which in monotonous and routine succession, literally weave the thread of our entire life, can be transformed through grace and love into acts that are very pleasing to God. When grace and love seize hold of everything in our life, he says, then listen to this, then every bit of our existence is like a perpetual hymn to the glory of God. Now, I hope it is clear from what we have attended to thus far that it is never a question of whether or not Christians engage in culture. Being human drags culture engagement with it uh, so that it is not possible to be human and not to be engaged in culture. The only question is how are we engaged culturally? And it is instructive in this respect that from one angle, two meals sit like bookends. Two meals sit like bookends at either end of the Bible. The catastrophic rebellion of the first couple involved a meal, or at least, as we might say, a snack eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the effect of that meal on the first couple is described as follows. Then their eyes were opened. On the Emmaus Road, Jesus instructs Cleopas and his companion about the Scriptures and himself. When they approach Emmaus, he moves forward as though to depart, but they're so intrigued, wouldn't you be, that you say to him, no, 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 stay, and let's do that quintessentially human thing and have a meal together. And then the text says this, and it's so intriguing. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Do you hear the inclusio in this verse with that in Genesis, which Tom Wright has alerted us to? The meal of rebellion led to an opening of the eyes, and so too does this meal with Jesus. Two meals, two ways one of redemption and reconciliation with God, one of seeing the Christ and how He is the fulfillment of God's purposes in this explosion of good news that constitutes the Christ event, and another meal that opens the way to human autonomy 
and rebellion against the king. You see, what the fall does not do is to reduce us to souls or spiritual beings. What the fall does is open the door for us to misdirect the God-given cultural dimensions of our human life in rebellion against God and to our detriment. Signs of such misdirection surround us and sadly often characterize churches and Christians as well. Having our eyes opened by the Spirit to see and submit to the King should seep like medicine through every aspect of our individual and corporate lives, bringing healing, restoration, and wholeness. It should manifest in our church attendance and prayer lives. It should manifest in a deep commitment, as Southeastern is renowned for, to evangelism and mission. For how can we be part of such a rich and extraordinary kingdom without wanting to tell others about it? And it should be manifest in the food we eat, the drinks we drink, in our family lives, in our educational institutions, in the way we build houses and develop towns and cities, in the way we teach, the way we learn, in the businesses we develop, and in our politics in every area of our lives. Only thus will our talk about God be plausible in this challenging context in which we find ourselves. And so in conclusion, I want to pose this question. As we look beyond the election today, how then should we live? I mean, I'm sure many of you have felt that uh, I'd be surprised if any of you thought this was an ideal election. I think, you know, many of us have thought, oh my goodness me, you know, how, how did we get to this place? And you have to ask those questions. It did not happen overnight. Okay, there is a dreadful, dreadful saying, which I don't want to impose upon you, but I ask myself continually about South Africa, where I come from, where we're in much worse trouble than America, I think. But there is this dreadful saying that you get the leaders you deserve. Okay, yes, you can lynch me on the way out and, uh, and so on. I, I wouldn't say that, but I would say that the leaders mirror something very important to you about your culture. And you should pay attention to that. It's a sign. And that sign needs to be interpreted. But how should we live today? In conclusion, I, I'm reminded of the remarkable book by Lewis Mumford, a big fat one. It drives scholars crazy because he never footnotes any of his quotes. I love it. I wish it was longer. It's a bit like reading Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And you think, oh my goodness, why did he write so short? It should be fatter, bigger. But uh, it's an extraordinary book. And Mumford notes that as the Roman Empire was imploding and had become a torture chamber and thoroughly overextended economically, does it sound familiar? The solution was being quietly lived in the wings. Now, I did research on this because I was so sure when I read this, Mumford must have been a Christian. He didn't attend church. 
But in his old age, those who lived with him would hear him saying his prayers before he went to bed. Mumford says the solution to the Roman Empire was being lived quietly in the wings in the monasteries, according to Mumford. There was a microcosm that would become the macrocosm of medieval society, a society in which almshouses and hospitals would spring up all over the place and from which slavery would be exempt. For Mumford, this is an extraordinary experience. I learned from this that amidst tumultuous times, we should get on with living the solution. Politics is important, but culture in a nation like America is about more than politics. And what I suggest we need in America and so many other parts of the world are thousands of groups scattered across America living the solution. That will only be possible if at the heart of those groups are thousands of healthy churches in which the true story of the world is continually rehearsed so that it, rather than the idolatrous cultural narratives that are abound, becomes the pacemaker of the consciousness and lives of God's people. Pastors will play a crucial role in such a context. I don't expect my pastor to be an expert in all areas of life. But what I do expect from a pastor is that he or she will keep God's people attentive to God, to God the King, to God the Creator, to the God who became incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth and says to us, as he does in Luke 24, verse 41, have you anything here to eat? There's so much at stake here. And I say to the administration and the faculty, make sure your students are being shaped for the challenging pastoral call that is upon them in this American context. Make sure that the theology they imbibe here is a theology that in the fullest sense is genuinely pro-life and one that is up to the challenges of the U.S. and the world today. Make sure that it's not just head knowledge but deep spiritual formation. And to, your, to students, I say to you what I say to my students. I love Southeastern. But you cannot rely on Southeastern for everything you need to provide you with what you need. You need to develop self-awareness, become aware of your own strengths and weaknesses. You need to see and celebrate the great strengths of Southeastern. And then I know, because it's a fallen, broken world, there are also weaknesses at Southeastern and in the Southern Baptist world. Be gentle and civil in both regards. Make the kingdom of God your primary commitment. Live ever more deeply into Christ 
and make your very real commitment to the Southern Baptist world with all its strengths, always secondary to that. A thousand candles being lit across the country amidst the gathering darkness. It may not save the country, but it may provide places where the poor and the isolated and the alone may be the only place where they can gather to warm their hands on a cold night. It is in such a way that America may remain divided, but our lives individually and communally will not only glorify God, but will truly bless our American neighbors and constantly offer the possibilities of healing and human flourishing, even amidst judgment. As the Second World War Protestant martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer never ever ceased to say, we need to constantly remind the world that world which causes us so much suffering, that it is indeed the world, God's good fallen, but being redeemed creation. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts. Edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.